Absolutely lovely today. Enjoyed that. Let's look into God's Word then this morning, and I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. We'll be looking at John chapter 14. Our focus text this morning will be a familiar one, 14.6, where Jesus announces that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. This statement where he says, I am, is the sixth of the I am statements in, in John. Not that that's the sixth time it was said, but these are specific statements that are made seven total in which Jesus announces that I am, and he will associate it with something. In 635 of John, I am the bread of life. 812, the light of the world. 107, the door of the sheep. 1011, the good shepherd. 1125, the resurrection and the life. Here in 14.6, the way, the truth, and the life. And then we'll hit the last one in chapter 15, where he says, I am the true vine. When he makes a statement, I am, and the way John has arranged it there specifically, it is a statement that certainly they would have been aware of, familiar with the Old Testament, in which Moses is wondering who will send him before this great king Pharaoh, and God says, I am. Exodus 31, I am. I was speaking to a young theologian the other night when I was having dinner at his house. You might know him, Cyrus Nunn. Okay. Cyrus actually gave me a slip of paper, and on it I was commending him for his excellent uh, handwriting skills, and then I read the note. And the note said something to this effect, why does God describe himself as I am? <laughs> After reading that statement, I knew there was hope for the future. <laughs> Some kids think rather deeply. Great question. I think I answered it something to the effect of, well, God is so big that any one word would really be too small to describe him. And so if he's going to describe himself, he, it encompasses everything. It just simply, I am. Any statement that you make about God is less than who he actually is. He is sovereign. He is transcendent. He is unique. He is self-sufficient. He is majestic. We often resort to superlatives when we think about God. Omni, all, if you will. Omnipresent omnipotent, omniscient. We can also describe by what God by what he's not. Infinite, that is, not finite. Immutable, he doesn't change. He's non-contingent on anything. These are attributes which describe God, and they're done in such a way that it, it really is beyond our comprehension. We can relate to many aspects or attributes of God, such as his love, his justice, 
even his wrath in the sense righteous indignation, his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, patience, truthfulness, and faithfulness. But the way we image and think of these attributes, they're actually less than who he is in the expression of those. Because our understanding and knowledge of those things are limited to our ideas about them and in our experiences of them. In each one of those, God is way above. There's a word for that in the scripture. It's called holy. It simply means a cut above the rest. Anything you think of in the greatness and goodness and forgiveness and justice and whatever, it all falls short of God's glory. His glory is the beauty of these attributes. It, it, is, it is overwhelming when you stop to think about it. When Isaiah gets a look in the throne room of God, the angels are around him, and their response is what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When Jesus says, I am and this, the way, the truth, and the life, this is God incarnate saying this. John will later on record and tell us in the book of Revelation, which means the disclosure, by the way. He will say that indeed it is Jesus Christ who you're seeing that is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is the one who is speaking here right now in our text who says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. This is none other than a holy God. He speaks these words to his followers in this upper room. A final discourse before he lays down his life, before he's buried and then resurrected, and then ascends on high. These are the final words to prepare his disciples for what is to come before them. This is the instruction to those who would follow, to hold this in their heart, that the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, the great I Am, is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's read it in the context in which it's given. In John chapter 14, it begins with Jesus comforting his disciples. They're going to need comfort. Great trouble is coming. And all those that would follow in their footsteps as disciples of Christ or Christians, this is a word for you. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it... Were not so, I would have told you that I, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. 
How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your word. We would wish to hear what Christ would say to his church. And may we have ears to hear, hearts to respond. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now notice verse 4 in our text. Jesus makes this statement to the disciples. You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas responds, verse 5, Well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So then how can we know the way? Where was Jesus going? The text is clear about it in verse 2. This is my father's house. There's many rooms. And, and this, I always struggle the way this is written here in English because it, it, uh, it, um, if you literally translate it, it, it can be a little bit of difficulty there. The point is, I, I wouldn't, if it, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, you think I'm lying about it? I'm going to the father's house. The kingdom of God, I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I wouldn't have said that if I was lying to you. So why does Thomas state this question? Well, we don't know. We don't know where you're going. All the disciples had heard already continually about what was going to transpire. The prophets had talked about it. Jesus spent three years talking about what was going to go on, that he was going to die, be buried, rise again, and ascend on high. But they're still confused, and Thomas is speaking really on behalf of all the disciples here. We have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of a written word inspired by God, so we can go back, and check the context and look at it as well we should. And so, I'll give them a little space there. They should have understood it. It was explained by Jesus. Their focus, however, I think, was not so much on his atoning death, which was necessary, but on this great triumph and what that would look like. Remember, in the upper room, they're all thinking about, hey, we're going to be insiders. Maybe we'll get a great place around the table of the Lord, if you will. That was their focus on that triumphal reign of Christ. But they didn't recognize how all this pans out, that Christ must redeem the saints and he must redeem all of them. He must suffer and die. He will rise triumphantly and send into heaven and be seated at the right hand of God in power, if you will. He's going to return in triumph and that reign will occur when all of his elect are called to faith and repentance. And then the Lord will come. It's imminent in that it could happen at any moment. It could happen before I finish. 
they're, they're unclear of exactly how this would play out. Again, we know the rest of the story up until now. We're still unclear today about the eschaton, that is, how will it finally work out when Jesus comes? And there is some legitimate disagreement and discussion on that, and we can agree to disagree about some aspects of it because, hey, this is something that's going to happen, and uh, we, we don't know precisely, but we do know enough. We know one thing, Jesus is coming. He's going to take his own. His own aren't going to suffer wrath. They're going to be saved from it. They're going to be with him in the Father's house forever and ever. That you can certainly know. And that's what we would look forward to. So, Thomas not certain how things would work out in his day exactly. How does all this fit together? I mean, he's focused, I think, and so the disciples on this triumphal reign... They don't have this idea of all this time of Christ patiently redeeming saints this many years. So they're not sure, and that's his argument. Well, we, we don't really know how all this is working out, so how are we going to know how to get there? How are we going to know the way? And Jesus' profound statement in response to that, he says, I am the way. That's what you need to really ultimately know. You may be uncertain in many aspects of your own life, how things will work out, how the promises that all things work to good for those who love God, who are the elect according to his purposes. He said, this doesn't look good. This looks bad. How is that going to work out? I couldn't possibly think how it could work out. Do you think they thought, how could this possibly work out when Christ is hanging on a cross? And then he dies and he's thrown in a grave. How is all this going to work out? The call is to believe in Jesus, who is the great I Am. Put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Stop looking inward. And even on the periphery, look upwards to Christ. That's the call. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. This statement that he makes in the original does include definite articles between each one, the way, the truth, and the life. I do think the way it's structured together that the way is primary and the truth and life are descriptions of that way. But nevertheless, they do parallel to some degree, and so that's how we'll proceed here in a further analysis. Let's look at the first one, statement that he makes. He says, I am what? The way. He's primarily talking about salvation. The word way simply means road. If you want to get to a destination, you want to go to, to Knoxville from here, you're going to have to take a road. You get on the road to lead A to B. That's the imagery there. In our context, the way then ultimately is to where? It is to the Father's house. It is to heaven. It is to the kingdom of God. Jesus describes himself as that road or that way and explicitly says in our text that no man comes to the Father but by me. If you want to get to a certain destination, 
there might be many roads that lead to it in the world in which we exist. But Christ is emphatically saying, to get there, to get to that place, there's only one road that leads to it. And that road is a person. It is Jesus Christ. He is the way. There is no other way. There is no way to go to be with God but by Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, we are living in a continually pluralistic society. Pluralistic in a sense that there are many different people and ideas and, and so forth. That's fine. And we should be able to uh, have um, agreement with others that disagree about various things. But not pluralism. Pluralism is an ideology that says, well, every idea, which we have a lot of different ideas, but every idea is equal and every idea is valid. That only works out in the mind of men. In great thinking philosophers, but in the real world, it doesn't work out. If you put a stop sign out front by the municipality puts one out there, we have one on the road out here, you can believe whatever you want to about that stop sign, that it's there to mean slow down, or the way some of these folks drive around, speed up, or even avoid it by running through our parking lot, which I still don't understand. It, you think that's a longer route, but in any case, I digress. You can believe all that you want to about that, but all views are not equally valid. Your false view can lead to a ticket, or worse, an accident, because your view actually doesn't change the reality of what is. The reality and for humanity is simply this. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that is the judgment. Every one of you are going to die. Everyone you know is going to die. And when you leave this earth, you will face judgment. You will stand for judgment and have Christ stand in for you on your behalf or you will stand alone. You need salvation from judgment. That salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Salvation from judgment because he bore it on his body on the tree. There's only one hope of salvation and that is in Jesus Christ. This isn't anyone just saying that. That isn't just me saying it. This is, I am saying it. This is the Lord God Almighty saying, there is only one way and it is through me. Let's run through the Bible a little bit and look at some text. You might, you might um, benefit from it. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'll look at verse 10. Acts 4, 10 through 13. Here Peter and John are preaching. You know, these are the disciples. These are the guys in the upper room. These are the guys that heard the message 
are now prepared and courageous and are preaching after Christ's ascension into heaven. And so what does Peter and John communicate to the folks in 410 of Acts? Let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you as well. His hope is only in Christ, and that's why he's there and proclaiming this. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, note this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by by which we must be saved. That was the apostolic message. Where did they get it from? Jesus, who said, there's no other way. I am the way. I am the road, if you will. Well, when they heard this and the boldness in which they proclaimed this truth, both Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated men, common men. They were astonished in hearing the power of the proclamation of this simple truth of the gospel. Because they recognized what in the text? I love that part. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Beloved, if you spend time with Jesus Christ, the great I am, the Lord God Almighty, and when he says there's no other way but me, you'll proclaim that way. Many in the evangelical church today consider this way a bit too narrow. Some have said, well, surely there's some sort of wideness in God's mercy. That God would honor good intentions of good people. The Roman church has taught for a long time that, well, if you don't despise all the little chicanery we engage in, well, then if you're duped, good on your own, God's not going to judge you. You can follow your own path of self-righteousness and surely he'll let you into his kingdom. Jesus Christ would be a liar if he did so. He specifically says there is no other way. Jesus Christ is God. He cannot lie. And he makes that statement clearly. This is the statement the apostles preached. And I don't care what place preaches something else. They're wrong. They're not wrong because I think they're wrong. They're wrong because of what Jesus Christ said. And Jesus warned this in great way. The road of good intentions doesn't lead to the Father's house no matter how good they are. And I can find many people that are much better than me and do much better work. But, uh, but I'm not on that road. I'm on Christ's road. And his work is perfect. Look at Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verse 13. In Jesus' message that, again, remember these disciples would have been with Jesus, would have heard Jesus say these kinds of teaching. That was in their minds. Certainly they had that specific statement, the final statement before Leaving this earth where he says, I am the way. You're not getting into heaven any other way. But Jesus would often teach and use this illustration of a road and a gate and that kind of imagery. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide, and the way, that is the road, that is wide, that le- easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way, there again, this is the idea of the road, is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is the denial of pluralism. The road of good intentions will not lead to the Father's house. Does it matter even if you use Christian-ish language? In fact, that can be some of the most self-deceiving. Look a little further down in verse 21. And this actually... This text is memorable for me because before my father died, he asked me to preach this text at his funeral. And why he was so struck by it is that um, many people think that they're on the right road and they even have good religious practices and great religious terminology, but they're on the wrong road. 721, Jesus, again, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. This is, this is not just confessing Jesus is Lord. This is Lord, Lord. That is, we really, really affirm who you are. Not everyone who says it in their confession will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That is, there is something characteristically changed about your life. It isn't a superficial confession. It isn't a superficial decision that you once make in your life, and then everything is fine. You get your get-out-of-hell card free, and then you're good to go run about and sin and do whatever you want. When Christ changes the heart of man, it changes it. He truly confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. There's something different on the inside. He says, on that day, verse 22, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare them to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Are you kidding? All that good work that they might have done, it is iniquity? Yes. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags, says the prophet Isaiah. Because every bit of it is tainted with sin, with self-righteousness. The only work that you can do that would be Perfect before God is the work of faith in, in, this, in that sense. It's not a work in the sense of you doing something. But if you must do something, believe in Jesus. Believe what? That he is the way. Put your faith in him. Jesus has already taught that to us. I'll read it for you, 629 of John. This is the work of God that you believe. That is, that you have faith in him. 640. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks to the Son and believes should have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. It is by faith that you'll come to Christ. This isn't a self-generated belief. This is a supernatural change of heart 
to where you see Christ is glorious. That's the way, the way to salvation. It is also, by the way, when he speaks of I am the way, it is um, descriptive of a lifestyle or a way of life. Those who are on the road in Christ have a new disposition in life, a new outlook in life. And that can be described as the way in which you walk in this life, your lifestyle. Those of you who are into sci-fi and have gotten into the recent uh, Star Wars Mandalorian thing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask some young folk, they'll tell you. But one of their mantras is, uh, for that group, is that this is the way. It's a word that describes their worldview and their lifestyle practices of those that are members of this particular cult. This phrase is actually appropriated from Christianity because it's the, it's the description of early followers of Jesus Christ. The term Christian actually doesn't show up until Acts 11.26 in Antioch where it says they were first called Christians. It was used as a word to, in a pejorative sense, to call them the party of Christ or little Christs. Eventually, the folks adopted it and wanted to be called then Christians. Sort of like if you call somebody Deplorables, the next thing you know, they're wearing shirts that say deplorables. That's the idea here with the Christians. But initially, they were called simply the way. I'll walk with, you can walk with me if you want through the book of Acts or, or just listen. Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. I'll show a few places in Acts. Here's Paul. <clears throat> he is Saul at the time name hasn't been changed. He hasn't been converted. He's against the church, those that follow Christ, the Christians. And so he asks for letters, verse 2 of chapter 9, the synagogues of Damascus said that he may, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's attacking the church. In 19 verse 9, speaking of evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew. 1923, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 2414, but I confess this to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship God, our fathers. And 2422, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. This is a description of the church as the way. It was derived from Jesus Christ who said, I am the way. This is the path of life as well. It's not just that Jesus is your ticket out of here to heaven. 
It is he's a way of life. That Christ is central to everything. These disciples then are characterized by the way of Christ. A description of their lifestyle. It's not reflective necessarily just of a decision, but also a direction, the road of Christ. I will just read a couple selections for you. Paul, talking to the church, then calls the church in in Ephesus in chapter 4 to walk worthy of the manner to which you have been called. What, what are you going to walk towards? You're going to walk in the way of Christ. Church of Colossae, similar statement. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Colossians chapter 2. As you have received Christ, so walk in him. First Thessalonians 2. I charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's the path. Step off the path. You confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. But characteristic of the life of those that are in Christ is they would be in the way of Christ, walking in that way. This way that we're talking about, following Christ, is a way of truth. And that's the second statement he makes. I am the way, and I would add, maybe describe it this way, the truthful way. Look back in John chapter 1 and verse 14. It talks about the incarnation of Christ at the very beginning. 114 of John, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That's the beauty of his attributes. It's been displayed in his life and how he lived. What is that like? It's the glory of, as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. He is the truthful way. He goes on to talk about John the Baptist, who bore witness of him. In verse 16, it says, From his fullness we have received. What fullness? The fullness of of the deity, Godhead, in bodily form. It's from him we have received grace upon grace. It's like wave after wave. For the law was given through Moses. And grace and truth, verse 17, came through Jesus Christ. No man, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So, how does, it isn't that grace wasn't included in the law of Moses. The law condemns so that you'll look to God for grace. But how is this made known? That's what his point is, that it came through Jesus Christ. That is the revelation of it. He explains it all. That Jesus Christ fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law that you cannot fulfill. It is his grace that is granted to you. And therefore, receiving mercy from the law, which would condemn you. He has made him known. That word, idea, therefore made known is exegete or explain the Father. 
Christ makes all this known. This is what makes this way exclusive. All other ways are false. You cannot know God apart from Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ, the only God, who has made himself known. It is his self-revelation. Any other source is false. He is true. Chapter 8 in the same book in John. He's arguing with the Jews who they think they know the Father. But they don't. These are very religious people. These are people that would make your righteous works, even this day, look quite embarrassing. They were very good at religious practices. They were very good in their external behavior. They claimed that Abraham was their father in chapter 8 and verse 39. But Jesus looks at them, this is God incarnate, and he can look straight into their soul and say, well, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you what? The truth I have heard from God. The source of truth is in Jesus Christ. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. Who's their father? Their father is the devil. So they lash out verbally like a lot might do in trying to protect their standing. We're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Pejorative statement. It's not true. It's like one of those, if you stop beating your wife, you know, how do you answer that? It's not sexual immorality. This is a virgin birth that he came. But they're using a pejorative way. They're claiming to know the Father. They're claiming to know God. And Jesus says to him, verse 42, if God were your Father, you would love me. That, that's the test. Do you love Jesus Christ? If you love Jesus Christ... God is your father. He says, because I came from God and I'm here. I'm not on my own accord, but he sent me. That's the idea of this road. He's coming to earth. He's coming here to disclose the father, to disclose God, the revelation. It's in Christ. That's the road. In the Old Testament, they use an imagery of a ladder. Remember the story about Jacob's ladder, the idea that there was some sort of mediation between God and man. In John chapter 1 and verse 51, he explains to Nathaniel, Jesus does, I say to you that you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's parallel to the idea of the road or the ladder, this bridge, if you wish. Between God and man, it is one. It is Jesus Christ. That's what this imagery points to. He is the truthful way. Jesus says, I'm the one coming down from heaven and, and then ascending into it. He'll tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
that linkage again is Jesus Christ, who is the way, truth incarnate. If you're still in chapter 8, look at it down to verse 43. They don't recognize the truth. And here you have Jesus Christ explaining to them the truth. And he says, why don't you understand what I say? Verse 43 of chapter 8, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He's a murderer from the beginning, and he can't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Those that would reject Christ as the way, those that reject him as the truth, they have settled for the lie of the devil. Speaking of the devil, when he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All of it is rooted in Satan. But because I tell you the truth, verse 45, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Can you imagine you asking anybody that question? I would never ask somebody to answer that question for me. Here, his enemies, they can't come up with an answer because this is truth incarnate. He hasn't sinned. And then he says, if I tell you the truth, why don't you believe and the question is, why don't you believe? Here's the answer. You're of the father, the devil. You can't stand the truth. You love darkness rather than light. Whoever is of God, he would say, verse 47, here's the words of God. That is the reason why you do not hear them. You are not of God. I'll stop right now. And if there's any desire to hear the word of God, the word of Christ, he will not turn you away. You can come to him now and receive him and repent. Back to our chapter in 14. He goes on to care in verse 7 after, you know, this verse 6 where he says, On the way, the truth, the life. He explains that he's God incarnate. That's this whole idea about seeing the Father. From now on, verse 7, you do know him and have seen him. How? Because it is through Jesus Christ you will know God. And it is only through him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how could you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is me? It's not only what he says, but it's also what he demonstrated in his life. The very works that I did should testify to that. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe at least for the very works that I did, which are, which are remarkable. The promises then that he makes, by the way, beloved, is based on who he is. He's calling those to follow him on the way, a truthful way, and it is assured 
based on his truthfulness as God. And if it were not true, he wouldn't have told you that. Verse 2. Thirdly, it says he is the way, he is truth, that is the truthful way, but it's a way of life. The word zoe here in Greek, it's a state of being, a being of, of life as opposed to death. Prologue of John begins explaining, again, we, we don't know precisely how all of this was carried out prior when God said, let there be light, and he spoke the worlds into existence. In John chapter 1, we discover that all things are made by Christ. He is the creator of all. Beyond that, he is the sustainer of all things, Hebrews 1. This, this earth will not burn up until he's ready for it to burn up. And it will burn up. He's promised that as well. But between that time, it, it is Christ who is sustaining all things. The only reason the world hasn't disintegrated this morning, the only reasons nations continue right now, the only reason you are breathing is because of Jesus Christ. He's not just the creator who let his creation go. He's actually the sustainer. He would actually fall apart. No wonder people are actually panicked all the time. Is, is the sun just going to blow up or, or are the world just going to go out of existence? What's going on? It wouldn't, if it wasn't held together by Christ, who is the life, there would be no life. Because of the fall of Adam, those who follow in his steps are in a state of death, condemned already, as John would say in his gospel. Everything might appear fine and well, but that would be ignoring the truth. The truth is we have great problem with the consequences of our evil rebellion against God. And so we strive in this life with thorns, thistles, weeds, rust, and yeah, even viruses. We live in a world of death, disease, destruction, and darkness. All of this is the work of the devil, by the way. He has been rebelling against God and led mankind to join him. But Jesus has prepared a way, a way of truth and life, contrasted with a way of lies and death. Jesus has entered into our world to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. But the way of the world leads to death. And there are many today who would spurn the wisdom of Solomon, who said that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but it is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. Jesus Christ is the way of life, as contrasted with death. He's not just coming to make another way, another possibility. Jesus actually breaks into humanity to bring life 
and redemption to his people to save them from the consequences of their sin. Even in this life, not only the penalty of it, but also the power of it. That's the way that we're talking about. It is a way of, of life whereby the Spirit you can put to death the deeds of the flesh in this way of life. John began his prologue speaking of Jesus. In him was life. 1-4 As the Father has life in himself, 5-26, so the Son also has life in himself. Those who look to the Son and believe, 640, will have life. And even though they come to the point of death, Jesus, the truthful one, has promised, I will raise him up. Jesus will tell those that are sorrowing at the death of their beloved in chapter 11. He says, I am, what? The resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And that's the question we all have to come to when we look at this text of Scripture. Do we indeed believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Thomas Akempis, in his imitation of Christ, colorfully explains it this way. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. Jesus would simply say, I am the way the truth, and the life. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. Speak to your people as they need to hear from you today. I pray that you would draw many to find the way of truth and life in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Take a moment now privately where you're at to reflect on these things as Christ has spoken to your heart.